Well, today is Trinity Sunday, and by God's good providence, we're in the middle of a series on God, which we are returning to after taking a two-week break for Ascension and Pentecost. So beginning today, Lord willing, we're going to spend a number of weeks on the Holy Trinity. This morning is, as the sermon title says, just an introduction, just an introduction. We'll make three points. They're there on the outline in your bulletin, the setting, the significance, and the statement. So the goal this morning really is to sort of whet your appetite for this short series on the Trinity, which we are adding now to our series on God. So first, the setting, meaning by which I mean like the situation we're in with respect to the Trinity in the church as a whole. Uh, There was a Canadian, famous 20th century theologian, philosopher, Canadian named Bernard Lonergan. And Lonergan commented dryly, and and he's referring here to terminology that the church developed in the Middle Ages, kind of scholastic terminology to try and understand or bound or get at the mystery of the Trinity. And so Lonergan says this, the Trinity is a matter of five notions four relations, three persons, two processions, one substance, and zero understanding. (laughs) Uh, And uh, Karl Rahner, another famous 20th century theologian, said this. He said that if the doctrine of the Trinity were discovered to be false, the vast majority of Christian literature would remain unchanged. So, I might add, with the vast majority of Christian practice and speech. As I said when we opened this series, if God were to have seven persons in his being, instead of three, virtually nothing would change for us. We'd have the same devotions tomorrow. We'd have the same passions. We'd have the same priorities. We could adjust. Simple tweak, we could adjust. We view the Trinity, if we think about it at all, as a very strange, impenetrable mystery. That's a largely irrelevant conundrum, and it's certainly impractical. I mean, after all, I think if we're honest, we would say it seems like a speculative distraction from the work of the gospel. I mean, why can't we just stick to... The simple message of salvation. Plus, there's all this jargon. That's what Lonergan was getting at. All this extra biblical language, right? The the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Natures and substances and persons and relations. The Bible doesn't talk like this. So if we do get around to the Trinity, it's treated like an add-on, kind of an optional add-on, like extra credit. Besides, there are other pressures, right? We live under the tyranny of the urgent, the immediate, the supposedly practical. As if high theology were not itself highly practical. I think many of you know who Sinclair Ferguson is. I don't think Sinclair Ferguson, who taught practical and pastoral theology for years, was himself a pastor. I don't think... He lacks street cred when it comes to things being practical and pastoral. He has a marvelous comment 
about Jesus' upper room discourse in John chapters 13 through 17. You know, that marvelous window into our Lord's last evening, his last hours with his disciples. Ferguson says this about that time and that discourse. He says that when his disciples were about to have the world collapse in on them, Our Lord spent so much time in the upper room speaking to them about the mystery of the Trinity. Go read that discourse. It's, I'm going to do this. The Father's going to do that. The Spirit's going to do that. I'm in the Father. The Father's in me. The Spirit proceeds from the Father. I send the Spirit. The Spirit reveals me. We will come to dwell with you. Trinity, 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 Trinity. The world's about to collapse. And Ferguson continues. He says, if anything could underline the necessity of Trinitarianism for practical Christianity, that must surely be it. So, grasping the Trinity, loving God as triune, it takes time. There's no immediate shortcuts to the work. And there's no immediate obvious cash value. There's no shining relevance to the great cultural issues the church faces. So it gets deferred. Usually it gets deferred forever for the whole of the Christian life. And it's hard to discern that anything pernicious is happening because we still talk a lot about God. Right? And we're still interested in God. As I've said earlier in this series, we're really interested in the X part of God and X. Where X is usually some Christian thing, and whatever X is, it's enormous, and God is some sort of background thing that thins out. He underwrites X. So we have little interest in the inner life of God. right? In His being as Father, Son, and Spirit. And thus, sadly, right, Trinitarian is not an adjective we use of ourselves. We don't really use it of our doctrine or our churches. Nor would anyone outside think to use it of us. Nobody says, oh yeah, you mean those Trinitarians down the street. But if God, if God, and not God in general, but the triune God, is our chief end, our goal, our delight... If seeing his face, if the vision of his glory is our destiny, then the Trinity must be a preoccupation of ours. Right? The church is, even now, and we saw this in the New Testament lesson, the church is even now a Trinitarian dwelling place. In him, in Christ, Paul says, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In Christ, we are a dwelling place for God the Father by the Spirit. That's why if you look at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, you see that the temple is replaced by the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, and by the Spirit, who is the water flowing from the throne. Right, And it's in that place that we will worship the triune God, see His face, and give Him glory. So this dwelling together in praise and in adoration, this is all we will be preoccupied with for eternity. 
The moment we close our eyes in death, the vast majority of a lot of what we are preoccupied with will fade into irrelevance. Trinitarian exploration is the only subject on the eternal curriculum. That's it. Trinitarian exploration is the only subject on the eternal curriculum. So it is fitting then, right? It's fitting for us to cultivate delight now. Even though to do this requires exertion, labor is necessary. We're seeking here to to reap an enlarged taste for and an enlarged capacity to enjoy the triune God. Perhaps the most famous work in the history of the church on the Trinity was written by Augustine in the 4th century. De Trinitate, on the Trinity. Still read widely and studied till today. In that work, Augustine says this. He says, In no other subject is error more dangerous or inquiry more laborious or the discovery of truth more profitable. Right? There is nothing more dangerous, there is nothing more laborious, but there is also nothing more profitable than undertaking the task that we're beginning here today. And before we start in earnest, I want to encourage you. Because, and this is really important, right? Whether we think of this or not, whether you realize it or not, if you are in Christ, you are immersed in the reality of the Holy Trinity. Right? We just, we read it in the New Testament text. In Christ, we are a dwelling place for God the Father by the Spirit. Right? You may be thinking, oh, you know, I don't, I can't grasp this Trinity. It's too complicated. It's too hard. It always hurts my head. It always slips out of my hands. You are already embraced by the triune God. This is not an exercise in somehow intellectually getting to a level where God will accept you or something like that. You're already embraced by the triune God. And Fred Sanders is an uh, evangelical professor at Biola in, uh, in Los Angeles. He's done a lot of work on the Trinity. He has these lovely words where he says, We are compassed about by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You are compassed about by these three persons. Not by God in general, but by this God. So we start, right? We start, for all of our ignorance, all of our foibles, all of our neglect, we start already enfolded in the love of the triune God. As it was with the early church, so it is with us. With the early church, you experience the reality first, And the detailed explanation, the technical issues, the clarity, that comes later. So we are, like, for all of our, perhaps, indifference, or perhaps our denseness, we are not. We are not strangers to the Holy Trinity. So what are we doing? What are we doing here, then? Well, we're seeking to kind of surface this reality that you're already embraced by. So that we could love and serve the Lord more fully. Right, so we can kind of live with the grain of the reality. So that we might more robustly, more worthily magnify his name. So that we might love the Lord our God with all of our mind and all of our heart and soul and strength. That's the setting for the doctrine. So the second thing is the significance of it. 
It's very significant, as you might guess. The significance of the Trinity. And what I want to assert here is that this is not only relevant, but this is of towering importance. There is no Christianity without it. And I want to look at this. These are very broad strokes. And I'm doing this intentionally. This is just an introduction. These are things that we might take for granted. We might overlook. So the first thing to say about the Trinity is, this is the distinctively Christian doctrine. The distinctively Christian doctrine. There's a famous creed from the 5th century called the Athanasian Creed. Athanasius was a 4th century theologian. He, was, he became famous as the defender of the Trinitarian faith, the defender of the Nicene Creed, basically. Here's what the Athanasian Creed says. Whosoever will be saved, before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic, that is the universal faith. Which faith? Except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. Well, that got dense fast, that creed, didn't it? Right? Now, notice, there's a warning. There's a warning of damnation at the front end of this creed. Now, it's not claiming you need to be an expert on all the nuances of the Trinity to be saved. But it is saying a denial of the Trinity is a denial of the faith. And a damnable denial. The Trinity is, in one sense, the Catholic or universal faith. Right? It is the distinctively Christian reality. This is what makes the Christian gospel Christian. Right? You, could, you could be a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness and still believe in God who sent Jesus to die for your sins and that Jesus was raised from the dead. Right? God, check. The Bible, check. Jesus as sent by God, check. Jesus as dying for my sins, check. Jesus as being raised from the dead, check. And none of that is the Christian faith. That's not the Christian gospel. There are people who believe all those things who are in cults. The identity of the God we worship, the identity of the Son he sends, and the relationship between the Father and the Son in the Spirit, this makes Christianity Christian. And this article, this doctrine, as the Athanasian Creed says, stands before all others. Notice the language. It was, before all things, this is necessary. Before all things. If we don't believe in this God, we are not Christians. We cannot get along, then. We cannot get along with some generic thing called God. Calvin says, when we start thinking about God without thinking of the Holy Trinity, he says this, he says, then only the bare and empty name of God flits about in our brains to the exclusion of the true God. So this is the question, right? What is flitting about in our brains? We'll have more to say about this in the weeks to come, but secondly, then, on the significance, when we come to the Trinity, we are coming not, not just to the distinctively Christian truth, but to the supreme doctrine. 
The great British theologian John Webster said, there's a sense in which there's only one doctrine. The Holy Trinity in his inner life and in his outer works. That is all that exists. That's all that there is. The Trinity in and of himself, the Trinity in its works. The eternal processions of the Son and the Spirit in the being of God, the temporal missions of the Son and the Spirit in the world. The Trinity, then, is not a tack-on. The inner life of God, the outer works of the Trinity, this is all there is. There are zero non-Trinitarian facts or realities in the world. Zero. All topics, then, all things derive from and end with this God. And that means the Holy Trinity orders and shapes, or at least it should order and shape, all Christian discourse. I mean, that's a, star- a startling claim, right? The Holy Trinity should order and shape all Christian speech. It gives you the widest angle view on the world. And so, while we rightly delight in God's works, right? We delight in God's work in creation. We celebrate and adore his work in redemption. It is crucial that above all, we delight in God in and of himself. Now, I've done this before here, so I won't repeat it, but I'll just remind you of the mental experiment where you think everything else out of existence. And what is left when you've thought everything else out of existence is the Holy Trinity, and it's more glorious, more alive, more interesting than everything you've thought out of existence. This is the passion of the psalmist in Psalm 73, right, when he says, Whom have I in heaven but thee, and besides thee there is none upon the earth that I desire. Let me put this slightly differently. Fred Sanders, who I mentioned before, has said it this way. This is perhaps maybe the best way of getting at what I'd like us to see this morning. He says, God's inner life is better than the good news. God's inner life is better than the good news. It's better than the gospel. Because the gospel is but a means to an end. Right? The gospel is a means to an end. Namely, face-to-face communion in glory with the Holy Trinity by all of God's redeemed people. We have a phenomenon in the broader evangelical and even Reformed churches now. It's probably good for the most part, but I've noted it. You may have seen it, right? There are churches now advertise themselves as gospel-centered churches. They have gospel-centered ministries. They're focused on the gospel. There's a gospel coalition, right? There's gospel-saturated this and gospel-focused that. But here's the thing. God is way better than the gospel. It's interesting. We don't have theocentric, Trinitarian-centric, God-centered ministries. It's always the gospel. Far be it for me to run down the gospel. But the point, beloved, is this. The gospel is a temporary, remedial thing. We have to ask this question. The gospel of what? It's the gospel of God. The gospel unto what? The gospel is a temporal, remedial thing. God was God for himself, enjoying his own blessed life. 
way before there was a gospel. And he will be sharing that life and that joy with the redeemed long after there is a gospel. The gospel's a parenthesis. God's inner life is way better, infinitely better than the gospel itself. Are we ordered that way? When I talk about a lack of order and proportion, this is one of the main things I mean. God is way better than all Christian ministry or all gospels. Because those are instruments to ends, and he's the end. God's inner life is better than the gospel. And as a professor at Reformed Seminary says, the doctrine of the Trinity is the most sublime truth of the Christian faith. It is its supreme treasure. So the Trinity, then, is not only the distinctively Christian doctrine, it is both the supreme and the most sublime treasure of the church. That's its significance. Finally, then, the statement, by which I mean... I will desire to simply state the doctrine clearly. Not going to try and probe it much today, but we want to state it. But before we do that, I'm going to quickly review all we've done so far in this series on God. It's only going to take one minute. Maybe less. We've spoken of God's aseity, that is his self-existence as the great I am. We looked at his undivided unity. His infinity, his eternity, his unchangeableness, his impassibility, meaning he doesn't suffer, his omniscience, his glory, and more. All of these attributes apply to the one divine nature of God. They are ways of describing the essence, the identical essence shared by the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So there are not three infinities in God. Or three eternities. There are not three sets of knowledge in God. There aren't three powers in God. Right? There aren't three distinct goodnesses in God. There's not three sets of holiness in God. Now this would be the case if each divine person was merely like a human person. Kind of a standalone entity where the three of them get together and they plan something out and they, they take counsel and they split up the work and they work together. That tends to be the way we think of the Trinity doing things, but that's because we have cognitive disorder. So it might be surprising to you, for example, there are not three wills in the Godhead. There's one will in the Godhead shared by all three persons. All of this is simply to say that to this point in this series, we've been looking at the undivided essence which is shared. It isn't duplicated. It isn't triplicated. The identical essence shared by all three persons. Every sermon in the series to this point has been focused there. Right? This is on display in the Old Testament lesson. The great Shema from the book of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One unified, undivided God who is to be loved with the unity and the integrity of our whole heart. And yet, as we will see, Lord willing, over the next few weeks, there are many texts which point us to the reality of three persons in this one God. You might have seen that in the, uh, the gospel lesson which I read. It speaks of baptizing into the name 
singular. Of the Father and the Son and of the Spirit, plural. One name or nature of God, three persons sharing or partaking of that nature. That's why we baptize and make disciples. So here's a statement of the doctrine in its simplest form. God is three persons in one being. Please just get that. You'll be good. <laughs> That's the, God is three persons in one being. Or you could say he's three persons in one essence. Or there are three persons in the Godhead. So, for example, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, after affirming that there's only one God, gives us this question and answer. How many persons are there in this Godhead? And the answer is there are three persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God. Right? They're not three gods counseling together. They're one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. So that's the basic statement of the doctrine. I'm going to deepen it just a little bit from what we heard from the Athanasian Creed. Here's the language of the Creed. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Neither confounding the persons, like mixing the persons up, nor dividing the essence. So I'll take this one small phrase at a time. We worship one God in Trinity. Right, the one God, the strong, undivided, simple, uncomposed unity of which we've been speaking is, shockingly perhaps, nevertheless, a tri-personal unity. One God in three persons. And next, the creed says we worship the Trinity in unity. We worship the Trinity in unity. It means the three persons are one. They are united in the one being of God. Indeed, and this is where it's different, than three human beings being united in a common cause. The, the three persons are united as the one being of God. I think I've mentioned before, if you wanted to try and get a creaturely analogy to this, it would be like three human beings, three different bodies, all sharing the same soul. Right? The, the thing doesn't exist on the creaturely level. The three persons are the one God. And the one God is three persons. I think everyone hopefully confesses that here. But it's very important to grasp this. There are not four distinct things that we're discussing. The three persons plus the one nature. There aren't four things. The eternal communion of the Father and the Son and the Spirit just is the one God. And the one God just exists as the eternal communion of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Okay, I'll stop. <laughs> it's an introduction. It's an introduction. It's a sterile title for a sermon, I know. But, so this is a great mystery. And it is, of course, intellectually challenging. But the point is not to try and exhaust it in any way. The, the point is simply to confess the mystery in such a way that we don't become heretics and we can adore the mystery. I've stated prior to this, but you can begin to see it here. There's nothing wilder or more complex or more interesting than the Christian God. This would all be simpler if Jesus was like a lower-level, second-order God. Right? The anti-Trinitarians, and they've been there for 2,000 years in the history of the church, their stuff's easier to understand. When it comes to the Trinity, let me say this. This is important. There are no experts on it. <laughs> I'm not an expert. There are no experts. We're all novices here. We all see through a glass darkly. We are all lisping babies. 
But this should induce humility in us, right? The saintliest Christian alive, the wisest man or woman alive, is, is at the level of a lisping baby when it comes to just even unpacking who God is. So, just because we can't grasp everything doesn't mean we can't grasp some things. And I want us to at least grasp this. We must always, always move from the one to the three and from the three back to the one. Call it the mysterious, glorious circle of divine life. There's a famous 4th century theologian named Gregory of Nazianzus. He did very much to clarify and shape the church's understanding of the Holy Trinity. And Nazianzus famously said this. He said, No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. He's moving in that circle. He moves from the oneness to the persons, from the persons to the oneness. He continues, when I think of any one of the three, I think of him as the whole. And my eyes are filled. And the greater part of what I'm thinking escapes me. can relate to that, right? The greater part of what you're thinking escapes you. Then he says this, when I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch. And I cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. So we worship, and we shall endlessly worship that God. One threefold torch of undivided light. Did you notice the opening prayer this morning? It's taken from the Book of Common Prayer. I commend it to you. It says that this God has given you grace to confess and to worship, and to keep you steadfast in this particular faith, right, of seeing this triune glory and coming at last to see it. Right, the prayer that opened the service is a condensed version of Nancy Anza's statement that I just read. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, the one God, The one God, as it was in the beginning, when there was no gospel, and there was no church, and there was no ministry. And as it is now, and as it shall be, world without end, amen.